Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey, everybody. Today on the School of Unlearning podcast, we have an incredible guest, powerhouse of a woman who is bringing change and humanity to the workforce. Heather R. Younger has a law degree. She's an experienced keynote speaker, two-time author, and CEO and founder of Employee Fanatics, a leading employee engagement company, which offers leadership development, DE&I consulting. And she's on a mission to help other leaders understand the power that they possess to ensure people feel valued at work. Heather's personal why emerged as she sought to find meaning from her difficult experience growing up in the 1970s. As the only child of an interfaith and interracial marriage, both Heather and her Black father were shunned and excluded by extended family because of the color of their skin. While the sting of exclusion left Heather with a lot of questions growing up, it also led her to develop a high level of resilience and a deeply inspired commitment to advocate for anyone who has ever felt devalued. Today, she credits her capacity to navigate complex social dynamics and discuss identity in the workplace to those early experiences and is dedicated to creating opportunities for organizational leaders, teams, and individuals to learn strategies for reframing adversity while empowering leaders to change their workplace for the better. This podcast is a personal deep dive into Heather's rich and dynamic life experiences and how she helps leaders and companies embrace tactics and skills to improve the employee experience. Have a great listen, everybody, and please share with anyone and everyone who you know would benefit. Hey, Heather, welcome to the School of Unlearning. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes. I'm so excited to talk to you today. We, I think we share a lot of common ground um, within the realm of um, bridging more leadership and human development in the corporate world. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited to dive into your book, uh, The Art of Caring Leadership, and get a little bit of a preview of what's coming for you and your work as well. Um, and I'd like to start every podcast out in, in a similar fashion. Um, I'd like to know a little bit about uh, life before, you know, writing books in the corporate world? Uh, where did you grow up and who were some key influential people in your life that helped shape you? Mm. Well, I say, where did I grow up? I'm actually originally from Ohio, uh, Columbus, but I moved there from there when I was nine and grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> uh, and then I moved from there when I was 23. So it's an interesting place to grow up, of course, like the Sin City environment. I lived really close to the Strip. Um, the, those who, uh, you said the person who really, or the people around me who informed me or kind of shaped me, I mean, I would say my mom and my grandmother, and it's interesting. So my mom is just because she just worked, 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 despite kind of some, a little bit of craziness in the life that we had. And uh, just always kept focus on that and was like, okay, I'm going to be a good mom. And I'm going to like focus on making sure we have what we have, what we need for eating and living. And then my grandmother it's twofold. One is she would always call me her little lawyer. She was actually from uh, the Bronx and she'd cut off that little R there, you know, because of that. And she just um, always would call me her little lawyer. She was like the one force in my life that was always like, keep your chin up and look a strong working professional woman. And she always would, you know, push me to be this lawyer and everything. But on the other end, she also was someone who um, hmm, was kind of like the, the, 
orchestrator of exclusion in my family because my um, because I was born with a white Jewish mother, black Christian father, and my family on that side with Orthodox, they weren't at all happy about that marriage. And so I was excluded from all family gatherings and really just hidden. I was the little black sheep of the family. And my mom even was kind of outcast as she married my father. So my grandmother on one side was like the person who said, oh, I have to protect our life, our family here. And we can't, we have to exclude you to that extent. And at the same time, she also was the one who pushed me to grow and uh, and to be where I'm at in, in a big way today, a strong and independent, driven, focused person who has a law degree, practice law, right? Yeah. So it's a complicated relationship. But I would say when I think about early on, they were probably the two that formed you most. That's a um, great share. I'm very curious about just like the sense of belonging, um, how much that influenced uh, your work along the, the way over the years. Um, through law and even through the work you do now in the corporate world where you know belonging and heart-centered leadership are the foundation of some of the things you teach um did, did that influence you at all growing up into oh yeah of course oh absolutely it did yeah. yeah i would say the lack of belonging or the lack of inclusion informs the work i do now around creating a sense of belonging at work and listening the focus on listening and inclusion and caring leadership and compassionate just showing up compassionately whether you have a title or not in the workplace um is kind of cool and it, it, interesting enough like it also it is just the same way at, if you're authentic then it's the way you are outside of it so if i find myself going off track or i didn't listen well or i wasn't i didn't show care in the way that's in, that's a congruent way for me what i value then i kind of come down hard on myself because I recognize it more than most would because that is what I do. I'm like knee deep in it all day. day. Yeah. So uh, it absolutely does. It, it, you know, it's one of those things. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing more enlightening or informing than being on the opposite side of the thing that you want out of life and mm -hmm. feeling the pain that exists in that, which is why like it, when I, when I, when I'm training or I'm speaking, I always like to give people, I want them to reflect on a time when they were excluded or a time when they didn't feel heard. And I want them to, I always say like ground yourself in that negative emotion so that mm -hmm. you can commit personally to never doing that to anyone else. Yeah. 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 I think that's a huge part. And, and one of the things I wanted to ask you too, as a speaker, when you get up and you speak in front of audiences, do you have a sense of like, responsibility for not just their experience, but also the content in which you're sharing. Uh, responsibility meaning like that they're engaged and that they're um, really understanding the value of, again, heart-centered leadership and, and caring leadership. Like, and, and how do you, as a speaker, how do you kind of like uh, abide by that and make sure that you're paying respect to the content also to their experience? Well, I mean, for me, you know, everything starts with, it starts with connection. So my main focus is that they feel connected to me and the truth that I bring. They, they connect to feel connected to the content and what it can do for them. And that they feel connected to each other and just sitting next to each other in their space, all on a journey together. So right. because I have that as my focus, um, all the other things just flow. So uh, I am a warm person. I'm super uh, energetic person. I like to engage with people. So all those things stay true. I don't allow myself to venture off. You know, when I do, when I try to say, oh, it's about me and am I looking good or am I sounding good? And I start to do all that. And believe me, I did that early on. Oh my gosh, the nerves got away from me because I was trying to be somebody I wasn't. Yeah. But if I lean into the strengths that I've been given and I'm a faith-based person, so I do believe there's like, this is something that was given to me. I don't I just, I don't think I was trained in that. I think I was given this. 
that yeah. uh, I like to just give that away freely. So. That's an amazing, amazing uh, perspective on speaking and connecting with the audience. Um, so I'm curious, just as you, as you move through life, through childhood, and you were influenced very much by uh, wanting to belong in a place where it was ambiguous at times, or maybe even clear at times where, where you were, weren't. It's okay. Um, we, pets are allowed on this podcast. They, they come in the door. Everyone's allowed to make an appearance, you know? Um, I'm curious about just your, your entrance into the professional realm. Um, you know, like, what did you think you were going to be growing up? Um, you, you were a lawyer. What did you think you were going to be growing up? And then how did you pivot into doing what you're doing now? That is so funny. Like as I was younger, I thought I was going to be a singer and then a model like Whitney Houston. She was my, she was my thing. And that was probably like, you know, early, like up until maybe, I don't know, nine or 10 or something. And then my grandmother went on that whole, you know, lawyer thing, lawyer thing, my little lawyer, my lawyer. And so because there was no other force really in my life saying, go here, do this, be this, uh, that's, I kind of followed it. Plus I followed it too, because I, in my very immature young mind, thought that the more I achieved and the more I met like her goal for me, the more she would include me. And that was <laughs> a not a mature concept. So it did, it did not take place. It, it, there were, that did not happen. But we did have our own really strong relationship. And so I had, I had a little vindication at the end of her life. And I had, um, I had some clarification in my, but it was not until my thirties. So, I mean, it took me a while to see it. And I have to say that that sense of belonging, um, and all of those things, it still creeps back up like to, to this day in almost every environment. I'm like, huh, like no one asked me or do. So I got to the point where what, what I found, and again, now I'm getting later on in life is that I can't, I can't sit around and wait to be invited. I have to insert myself in a way and I have the skills to do it. It's not that I have the skills to do it. I just, I think I was always waiting to be invited just because I had never been invited early on. And mm-hmm. um, now I realize that I'm just not going to sit back and do that. And the other thing is like all of that, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Like those internal thoughts actually kind of produced in me this counter response of, oh yeah, don't you dare tell me I'm not good enough in one way or another, because I'm going to show you. And I, and I do it every time. It's just the way I am. So now I'm kind of competitive against a thing that probably doesn't even exist out there. (laughs) Well, it's fueling you and you, you not only have a seat at the table, but you have a microphone and you have things to say and people want to hear them. So um, I saw this great quote once it said, belonging is a seat at the table. Inclusion is, um, you know, having, having a voice. And I think that, you know, a big part of what you do in your work is, uh, self-leadership to team leadership to obviously caring leadership and beyond. Um, and I think that it's, it's really important that, especially in a remote world, a hybrid world, a world where the entire, um, essence of what a business is for a society, for a culture is changing, um, people need to feel not just belonging, but a sense of inclusion. And, and I love your voice because it's, it's empowering. You know, you're like, I have something to say, <laughs> and let's, <laughs> let's rumble with these ideas. So w- what was the turning point that got you out of law into the work you do now? Well, you know, I was working at a, I was working there and I felt like I was like withering at the vine of the law firm. I was like, this was just not for me. And I remember going to this, um, I would always go, I was marketing the law firm. So I was really good at marketing, which is not a big surprise. I would go market the law firm, bring these clients in and the, and the, the partners were like, oh, gosh, we were like a maniac when it comes to bringing clients. And I just hated working with them when they got there. Like, I didn't want to do that. It's just like the briefs and the research and the writing. It was just like, ugh. 
So I remember going to this, um, when I'd go to this Boulder Chamber event, and there was this lady who was in Mary Kay Cosmetics. Yes, I am going to go there with you. And she used to kind of like court me. She would court me. And I don't, and I didn't like wear any makeup. I mean, I was in Boulder, Colorado. So she'd be like, oh, your skin's on this. And you're that, and you're that. And so I loved all the people that was around her. She always seemed so fruitful. And, and she just seemed successful. And all the people were always happy. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I want that. Because right now, I am miserable. <laughs> so I started to go to different events with her. And finally, I was like, you know, I quit. So I quit the practice of law and went to work with Mary Kay Cosmetics. That was a huge turning point for me because I was there for four and a half years, earned cars, had people, you know, people on my team and stuff. But the biggest thing I learned is there was two things. One, I learned, I learned how to talk to people about really complicated circumstances that would be like women who didn't have confidence in themselves to have a business. It'd be like women, yeah. I'd have to talk to them about their finances so they could get inventory. Um, and then every week I'd be standing up in front of, you know, 30, 40 women trying to again uh, inspire them train them on how to do this business and so it was huge for me because I, I in that I realized in that moment like that idea of being able to see the, the greatness and the people who don't see it in themselves uplifting different people was a was a thing that was given to me as well but I didn't realize it in, in, until you know I was in that circumstance I left there some years later and did kind of a sequence of large account management, customer experience, uh, kind of sales-ish types of things, contract management in a, in, a, in a large account management space. And then the turning point, um, let's just, I'm gonna, so I'm fast forwarding you, a turning point, I was at a company and there was a merger of about five companies and um, I was there leading customer experience for the company. I knew the merger would probably produce a layoff, but during this merger, it was just like the culture started going downhill and nobody was really listening to both the customers or the, the internal customers, employees, uh, about kind of what they thought could make the merger success. And as a result, I mean, the, 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 it's just the merger was not successful. And they had to do layoffs, but it, was just, it ended up not working the whole merged experience. I think it kind of fell apart after all of the, everything took place. But as I was knee deep in it, I felt myself being dragged down and I'm really kind of a positive forward thinking, mm -hmm. um, resilient person. But I felt myself going, Ugh. like the energy was just, like, Ugh. It was just draining yeah. out. And I went to the head of HR and I'm like, we got, we really need to do something. Like we have to do something about our business trust, lack of engagement, the culture, we got to do something. And she said, you know what? You're right. You go do something about that. You really should. And I'm like, yeah. I'm leading customer experience. I'm coming to you because I'm pretty sure, you know, in that moment, I realized number one, culture is not the responsibility of HR. It's everybody's responsibility. And number right. two, I was a perfect person to kind of be the catalyst for it. I'd already acted like an informal ambassador, really bringing people in, round tables, uplifting people. And so I did it. I started an employee engagement council. It brought people together and we started to, to really listen to each other and started to talk about ways we can break down the walls and create more connectedness in the culture instead of the yuckiness that was there. And it started to work. We started to have like different different types of activities we did to bring people together to really make this human know that this human wasn't their enemy and that this person with this yeah. title was not, you know. And yeah. it was fun. I realized right in that moment though uh, that that's what I should be doing. I should be bringing I should be bringing out the truth of the matter, creating the connectedness within the culture, and then being kind of the deliverer of the message back to the, those who can really improve the experience. So the layoff took place. There's about 200 of us, and um, and probably shortly thereafter, start writing on LinkedIn, writing one of my articles about how to lay people off with dignity. And I and they did that. They actually did a good job of that. Actually, years later, I would um, include the person who was the orchestrator of the layoff in one of my books, um, it, like at, by her 
permission, like interviewed her and included her. And then, at the, and then the second book she actually endorsed. So it was kind of an interesting thing. It kind of goes back to the grandmother thing, right? Where I'm able to see both sides of the coin where there was pain that was produced in the layoff. There's also this, this baggage or like uh, directive that she had on the other end that had to get done. And so mm-hmm. I saw the humanity in it, not like I wasn't like angry at her for having to kind of orchestrate what took place. Um, so yeah, so in that moment, it was, I realized that I created my company. I started doing more consulting. I mean, and that's, that's the story. Yeah. Um, Heather, high five through the screen. No one can really see us, but high five there just because I, I, I love the, the vibe of making, again, uh, life gives you things and you make mm-hmm. sense of them. And it seems like you're driven, not obviously by faith, but I'm wondering what beliefs kind of power you on the back end. You know, like I have a bunch of beliefs that kind of like anchor me, you know, when, mm-hmm. when really everything's happening. I'm like, cool, cool. Like life, <laughs> life is for me. Life is for me. I've got to believe this. Even <laughs> when I'm crying or upset or I feel really worried about something, I have to believe that life is for me. You know, it has my back. Um, that's a belief for me. I'm just curious, what are some of the beliefs that have buoyed you through the years that propel you to have the mindset you do to make sense of the world around you? Yeah, it's interesting. So there's a couple there. Um, one's going to sound probably self-centered or kind of strange-ish. And a lot of my things will sound kind of spiritual in nature, that's for sure. But one of them, it was a big one, was my mother. She would always tell me um, two things. Turn the other cheek. So like when someone else is doing something, you know, you, you let them be them and you be them, you be you. And at the same time, take the higher road. So don't ever stoop to someone's level. Those were kind of two foundational concepts she she taught me early on that kept kept me and that by the way I teach my four children too at the same time she used to always tell me never use the word hate hate such a strong word think of something else that you use because hate is when you say that word you can't take it back so I do that and I also teach my kids that too that we do we just don't talk about hate and we use alternative words for that and then I would say um I always, from a very young age, like, through all of that craziness, I, there was some more craziness too that I don't really want to talk about now, but there was a lot of craziness in my childhood. As an only child, I had to kind of sit in the muck with it. and But in it, as I was in it, I felt like, like kind of strong, almost protected too, in a certain way. Like there's greater things in store for you. Like you have things to do in this world, but this stuff is just going to be small as you look back on it. And so I felt like that sense of like, you're destined for something bigger from probably before I was even double digits. So, um, so then like everything I did, it was like, what is that thing? Like I'm leaning up to this thing, like, what is that thing? And I thought something about the stage was a part of it. Like I remember watching, um, I don't even, I don't really particularly like him, but, 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 but now, I mean, back then I was a kid, I didn't know, but the Reverend Jesse Jackson, um, I remember seeing him speak. I was about eight years old and I saw him like on a TV show or something like that. Cause I watch a lot of TV as the only child. And, uh, I watched him and I was like, wow, like I watched the whole audience and they were all quiet and I could see just like, you know, it, it, the, it was dramatic, but it was like powerful and the words were piercing. And I was like, oh, like, hmm. And I just kind of wondered. So when I went to law school and I, would be doing like mock court competitions and like doing those things. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, like we trust you. Like you're so trustworthy. You're just so, and I never took it for granted. Like I, I loved that I said that, but I also was like, I'm super humbled by it. Like that I can draw people in, in that trusting space like that. Um, and so anyway, those are all the, like these little things that were like, they kept informing the journey and pointing me down this path, this path, this path. Um, yeah. yeah. So there you go. Voila. 
Yeah. So, okay. So life in, in law, Mary Kay, um, getting into a bit more corporate consulting. Uh, someone hands you the keys to rebuilding culture in a company and you're like, wait, that's not my job, but okay, I'm going to make it my job. And you go out there and you, you kind of beta test some things. You see what's working, you see what's sticking and what's, what's not. Um, there's a layoff and, and, you know, that happens so often these days too. And you decide I'm going <laughs> to make some sense out of this and teach people how to do it a little bit better. Um, and then what? Um, you obviously have publications, you're speaking often, you know, uh, you're obviously, you're, you're an executive leadership coach. How, how did you, um, how did you find yourself in this space so full-time and, and what are some of the best parts about your work these days? Uh, boy, you know, I kind of, I, I because I'm, I'm an iterator, it's just how I'm made. So I'm like, let me test this. And it doesn't make a lot of people comfortable. It's like on my team, they're like, okay, but can we have a plan? I'm like, well, the plan is that we're going to test this. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of have done that. A lot of things have been super organic. Yeah. The only thing that has ever been my intention is that I stay true to who I am and my values, that my congruency is for first and foremost. So people say, I hear them often say, that you are the epitome of the work you do or that you embody the work you do. And that is by intention. Like I am ten, an intentional that. What I mean by that is we all go about life like kind of accidentally something on this and that. But for me, like my North star is being the work I do. It's yeah. being it. And if I find or sense I'm not being it, it has to stop. And I will apologize for people if I see that there's incongruency. I take that very, very seriously. So I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that stayed true. But everything else around that, meaning like, okay, like speaking and writing and consulting and training and coaching and podcasts, part of that was literally just like, how do I continue to amplify the messages? How many more mediums can I get the message out on? How many more people can I touch? Uh, how many more experiences can change based upon this work? So that's literally like all I ask. So it's, it's not really, I, I wish I could tell you I was more strategic in that way. It just ends yeah, up being yeah. that it's all about impact. It's about global touch. It's about uh, congruency. Uh, it's about realness. Um, I had someone say, gosh, you're such a star, yet you're so down to earth. And I take that as a huge compliment. Like yeah. if someone were to say, wow, you have such, people will say you have great presence, but they don't say like you have great executive presence. And I actually take that as a compliment because in mm -hmm. my mind, I don't want someone to see me as like some woho executive that is untouchable, that is unpenetrable. No, I don't want that at all. I actually want them to see me as somebody that they can see through and I can see through them and that I'm willing to kind of tear up and have that kind of conversation with them and meet them exactly in the space that they sit. That's important to me. That's why Claude yeah. and I have such a good connection. That's why, yeah. you know, she and I have had our, because, because both of us are kind of the heart, that whole heart idea is big yeah. for both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Claude Silver. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I, I love about your story and also just even right now, is just like the presence and power that you have just being yourself. And I think that, you know, this is talked a lot about in the world of leadership, human development, self-development. Um, and it's, it's something that you just can't, you can't make up, you can't contrive it, it can't be contrived, you know, it's, people can sniff it out from a million feet away. And I think, you know, one of the compliments you got of like, you know, you, you have presence and you walk, walk with your work is, is truly a testament to, to doing values-based work. Um, so I'm curious when we get into your book, uh, The Art of Caring Leadership, you know, your story to me embodies a lot of what I call follow the breadcrumbs, which means like 
I don't know where the next five years is going to be, but I'm going to keep following this interest and this thing that feels compelling and this thing that feels compelling. And to your point, which I love about the way that you think is whether it's a podcast or a, a TEDx event or something, I'm going to go ahead and find the medium in which to share that message. I think that's mm-hmm. a great sign of scrappiness and also just like being driven by something a bit bigger than you, which I think is really incredible. Absolutely. I totally feel that way that it is. You've you hit it spot on. Like, I don't believe it's, that's why the spiritual part is there. It's like, I don't really believe it's me that determines my next steps. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I just don't, I believe that it's the person, you know, God above in my mind that determines my next steps. So I just kind of go, let me just pay attention. If this isn't feeling right, if it's too, too hard to get this done, I, it could be that I'm not supposed to be doing this. So I just try to pay attention a lot. I want to talk about the paying attention part. I talk about this quite a bit in in my work as a leadership coach and also just like um, as a storyteller, like through social media, I talk a lot about paying attention. Um, I give a little bit of credit to the great late poet, Mary Oliver, who said, you know, go into the woods and to pay attention to to nature, to the things around us. You know, it's obviously part of a mindfulness movement. But Mm. when you think about career development, personal and professional development, I, I've never gotten to a place in my career where I've thought, hmm, what do I do next? It's generally like I'm paying attention to the things that are really uh, full of resistance or struggle or irritation. Like, okay, I got to move from this field or pivot from this field. Mm-hmm. Um, and, if, and if I am paying attention and walking my walk, I'm kind of always like, huh, this topic of belonging keeps coming up in the last couple of months. Let's research that. So I, I want to talk about for you, you seem like someone who when you do something, you do it really fully and you can't fake things. So what advice do you have for people out there who are listening, who are in the corporate realm or in academia or wherever they are? And they're at this standstill with their career. They're at a standstill with like, I don't know what to do next. Um, it could be part of paying attention, but also like what advice would you give to people who who aren't maybe as attuned to following the breadcrumbs, who are a bit more like, um, they're not sure what the next thing should be. How do they figure out uh, where to go when they're in that space of like ambiguity and um, you know newness? Here's what I'm, I'm working with, and I, I I'm very leery to say this because I don't want people reaching out to me on this. So I, you know, I'd rather you go to Lisa and not go to me on this. But I have a couple clients that I still do executive coaching with. I don't. That's not the main thing I do. I only do it for kind of clients that we're already doing engagement work or DEI consulting work for. So I have a couple of clients, this is what we're doing. And they're kind of in that same spot. And I'm not even a career, that's the other thing. I'm not, I definitely am not a career coach, but when it comes to leadership and like journey and like where do I want to be? I would say to start to journal, let's say for two, three weeks, your highs and your lows throughout the day. Mm. What exactly were you doing? What your meetings were? What were you, what was your role in it? Who was around you? Um, Tracking that for yourself. Just saying like today I did this high low tomorrow. I did this high low and look at it over two, three weeks. And you're going to see a trend of when your energy felt high, when your energy felt low, when you felt like you could conquer the world and you felt like you're being like smushed. Um, And I think that exercise is so insightful because what happens in that is not only do you go, oh gosh, there's obvious, I see trends now and I do it over a couple week period. But now you can use the words that you wrote as actually creating your next job description. So you can yeah. see if you should be, if you could stay in your company with the next description that fills the highs more than the lows, um, or do you have to move out of the companies? There's just no opportunity to get more of those highs. We're all going to have lows. Like it's not, we can't like create a job that has like hundred percent of the days where everything is like perfect. Um, yeah. But if you can get to, I mean, I'm going to be honest, doing the work I do, I'm at about 80% of the time. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm like, this is dang good. And then there's like cool. that 20% where I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, but I have to do it. Like we all, we have to do it in order to go out to the other side. So that's what I would say. A big tip that would help with people on that journey. 
Yeah, I really like that a lot. It's paying attention. It's also doing like an audit of like what's working, what's not, what's mm-hmm. it sound like, and feel like. I think that's a huge thing. So in, in your work and helping organizations and teams effectively put employees first, you one of the books you wrote, The Art of Caring Leadership, um, the first one of the first tips you give in, in your nine chapters here is cultivate self-leadership skills. Um, self-leadership skills are things that I love and I talk quite a bit about. It, what is one thing that you do for your own self-leadership that is part of your like foundational routine or ritual that allows you to show up for yourself? And, and in the chapters, like what's one thing you think is like non-negotiable for leaders as they're building, you know, employee first type teams? I think self-leadership is non-negotiable. So that's why I started it at first because, and it is a very robust chapter and it's because it's the most important. If we can't lead ourselves first, we, we can't lead others. If we don't fill our own cups up, we can't, we can't do that for others. And, and me too, as a, as a mother of four children, life gets so crazy. And there are times where I'm like, I get like irritated at others, but it's more about me, like deep in it, it's about me. And it's like, how much have I cared for myself today in the ways that I need? I would say that there's two ways that I, I primarily lean on to, to, to do that. Um, one is congruent, as you heard me talk about earlier, um, leadership congruence is important. Am I walking and uh, enforcing and supporting things that I say I value, or am I doing things counter to that? Because I can't even live in integrity. I can't go to sleep at night. For me personally, if I can't lay my head on the pillow and say, today, I was like 90% there with what I say I value. Okay. And if, and if I, if that's my sniff test. And if I am not, okay, what do I do? And do I have to go back to apologize to people because I wasn't? That's, right. that's one le- congruence. Leadership congruence is a big one for self-leadership. And the other thing would be it, it, self-care um, is huge. It's really huge. And that would be, self-care could be, it doesn't have to be what it is for everybody. So for me, it is like getting up in the morning, go down to my basement to my home gym, get coming upstairs, having my same breakfast every single day, like Monday through Friday. I do the exact same thing. It's what I like. It's my thing. Cup of coffee, inserting time before my day starts. I am, I have my own business. So I can say, okay, let's not book anything before this time. So I can make sure I have this, this, this all online. Now I can set my day on track for success. And then of course, for me, it's making sure I have time kind of not lately, but I try to get that time in where I'm able to be with each of my kids individually because it fills me up to be with them. It fills them up to be with them. So it's like we both, it's, we're both getting it. I, I call it, consider them my crew. So I'm like, I want to be with them because it fills me up. They inspire me. And then the vice versa. I learned so much from them. It's dang crazy how much I learned from them. Right, so those are right. the things I do. And I think uh, self-leadership is so important. We have to start with us first. It sounds weird because they're like, Heather, you're talking about all these things about you know, showing up better for our people and like caring for people. But like, why are you putting so much focus on me? <laughs> yeah. You can't give from an empty cup, y'all. You can't. You can't. You know, it's funny. I find that I, I have gotten a lot of people who like, they might get it intellectually, but they have a lot of resistance to self-leadership and to like putting themselves first and trying new habits and rituals that allow them to show up to work present. What do you do when you face teams or uh, leaders who have resistance to like, uh, buying into self-care and self-leadership. Uh, what do you say to them and how do you get them to, to budge? Um, you know, again, with the folks that I've worked with directly, and that's been probably, I don't know, four hand, like four handfuls and that's it. So it's not like I've done hundreds and hundreds because it's not my main thing. Yeah. But I would say um, as I've worked with these people and worked with them for a long time, I, I would tell them to track. So I build, I'm a big thing even though I'm on the kind of touchy-feely side, whatever you want to call soft skills, I would even call this thing of, of business. I do believe everything should be grounded in data. And data to me is numbers and it also is qualitative. So it's stories, it's experiences, it's data that you can trend over time. 
So with them, I have a lot of them journal. I have a lot of them, like I, I tell them, like directively, you're going to do it like this time of day. Let's put it on there. Tell me now, track, let come back to me and let me know how many times you actually go smell the garden. You go walk in that, whatever the thing is that, they, that fills them up. And once they go back and they go, oh, it's only like I did it only twice. Okay, well, let's talk about how you felt those days where you did it twice. What was happening and how productive did you feel? So as I go deeper and deeper and deeper into that and make them think about like the end goal and in response to them doing it, then they realize that things turned out better that day for them when they followed that, that uh, circumstance, when they decided to go do that 15 minute walk, they decided whatever the thing is to them. Cause some people are like, they love gardening, but they work at a building. There is no garden. Okay. Well maybe there's plants. Okay. How many times this day did you take really deep breaths of the soil in the plants that are on your desk? How many times? So it's whatever it is for that person. And then just having them be really reflective, go deeper. I believe in going deep. Deep is the, the name of the game, kind of like you're doing right now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is part of it. This is a big part of it. Listen, let's let's stay in that that track of like meaningful, you know, deep conversation. But what excites you um, and gets you out of bed the most about the work that you do? Like, what is the thing that fires you up where you're like, give me a microphone or give me a pen and pad. Like, I got things to say and things to to create. I know you're creating a book right now, but I'm just curious what what lights you up. You know, it's things to say, but it's things to learn. Like I, you know, it's going to be, it's hard for me not to be in those listening sessions with employees. And I do the whole list, everything that we do on the corporate consulting side, it's hard for me not to be there with them and lean in deeply with them. So I love the learning and the being with the people, whether it's on stage, whether it's with leaders or around a table, whether it's, um, or a virtual table, like, right. It doesn't have to be in person whether it's the employees, but you know, I would say the biggest thing, my, my mission really does feel like to be the voice for the underdog. Like I, I gotta be to have helping a bigger thing happen. Uh, so it's, while I love working one-on-one with the leader who then can also deliver on the experience for a group of employees, it helps me a lot to say, let me be the one who gets to the truth. Let my firm be the one who, we, we get to the truth for the organization, the truth of what their employees want. And then let me, because I learned it so early on and my team, you know, really work on how do we communicate that real truth to the leaders in the way that they can hear it and they need to hear it so they can do something about it. And so I would say those, that's really what gets me all jazzed up. Yeah. Um, that's also like a creative task and like a connecting job again, too. Like, you know, connecting mm -hmm. the, the people to the people who are going to make decisions to change things. Mm -hmm. Um, so in your work and in the research you've been doing with companies and through your own company, what are the things that employees want the most um, at the end? That if you know that the landscape of business and corporate realm have changed so much in the last three years because of hybrid remote work, um, you know everything that's happening in our in our society. What do employees want the most these days when they think about um, an, a great employee experience? I mean, I would say that the only thing that really is change is that obviously people want more flexibility they didn't realize how much they wanted until they had it and now they're like i'm not letting this go because they, they knew they could like work from anywhere they could they could just like have a, more, a little bit more balanced uh, lifestyle they had none at all before so i'd say that thing changed i would say though other than that they want what they always wanted which is leaders who demonstrate very clearly that they care for them by listening to them and treating them like they're a human and not a number that they, uh, that they want people to recognize and value the work that they do, that they put in by either promoting them, giving them more money, or just recognizing them from a, you know, a pat on the back or a gift or a thank you note. Um, 
I think a lot of the foundational things that they have, that, that our t- people have always wanted, they still want, it's just that they mostly want it their way. So that customization of the experience is really critical. So every leader now has a role to play. It's not just like HR or the executive team, but it's like, okay, as a leader, how much are you listening to your people and how much are you giving them very specifically the experience they need and want? And when it feels very close and connected that way, um, then folks are really reluctant to leave it. Yeah, I think that the the word that I'm taking away from that is specificity. You know, I think that mm-hmm. whether it's giving someone a compliment or um, you know giving someone feedback, I mean, we want specificity. Otherwise, it just feels like kind of like you Could know cutter. <laughs> exactly. And I don't think people you know respond super well to that. Obviously, for 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 good reason. It should exactly. be personal. Totally, it should be created to to their needs, whether it be a compliment or employee, you know, benefits and experience. So in your book, you talk a lot about, you know, chapter six, creating a listening culture. I'd like to, to jump off there. I know it also segues a little bit into some of the work that's coming out for you in a new book. Um, tell me why, why listening matters so much uh, to organizational cultures and, and what you recommend to teams. I think, you know, listening really is the foundation of everything. I mean, everything that I think that we all talk about, I mean, we can't get to more sales. We can't get to better customer experience. We can't get to employees who want to stay. We can't get to higher revenues. We we really can't get to any outcome unless we're properly listening to the stakeholders who are there. So this next book, I was really purposeful to make it about people at work. So it's more expansive. It's not just employees. So it's any stakeholder really at work. It applies to anybody there. Um, if we think of a board member who, who has a, a, an opinion or a piece of feedback, if we think of a customer who's looking, you know, there's a new product or they're not happy about their experience, if we're, again, if we're looking at employees. So I think the key is if we want any end result at work, anything that we're looking for on the strategic dashboard up there, if we aren't listening first, we aren't going to get there because it means we're making tons of assumptions. We are, mm-hmm. we're giving, we're doing things to people instead of including them in their journey. I think the most empowering thing we can do for people at work is to include them in the journey that we're all on. And when we include them, they don't feel like things are happening to them. They feel like they're happening with them and they're going to be more bought into the experience. Again, whether it's the customer, the board member, whoever it is. Uh, it, so when I think of inclusion, I'm talking about everyone, everybody underneath the sun, of course, yeah. to the extent that they want to participate to the extent that they want to play because as I say that and saying being inclusive as you're in those meetings or something and you feel those you sense those people that even though you're trying to hear their opinion and you want to be inclusive of their voice there's just no way they are playing the game like they're not on that journey of like this is where we're going this is the vision how do we all get there everybody and they're like nope not doing it not doing it well I mean in that case they may have to get off the bus so caring leadership does give accountability does have guardrails does give guidance and have some clear expectations in there, but it does mean that whatever you're trying to get to, hopefully the vision is inclusive of everybody's voices too, that then the journey itself is also inclusive of everybody's voices. So that's what I would say. I think that's a mic drop moment. Thank you for sharing that. And I also would agree too, from everything I've seen both as an internal employee and as an outside consultant now is that when decisions are made in a collaborative space and people are listened to and at least feel heard, they're going to be more willing to go through the change. They're going to be more willing to work a little extra or in new ways and and adopt a growth mindset there. So um, I think it's foundational to all culture in, in in all realms. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about this idea of unlearning, you know, this, which could be defined and is defined by every single guest in different ways. Um, To me, unlearning is sort of questioning the playbooks we've been given, you know, about everything from 
finances to gender to relationships to to what is what is a good business what is business meant to be in this world um so questioning the playbooks that we've been given by society by the people who came before us um and 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 writing our own playbooks so one of the things i'm curious about here for you is what do you find in in your work that you've been doing for some time what do you find that that leaders need to unlearn about running a company that's rooted in care? Like what do they have to unlearn and rework and rethink in order to get to the next level of leadership that benefits all people? Mm, gosh, there's lots of lessons. I would say this is coming to the forefront recently because a lot of leaders have been asking me this. So I'd say one thing is this, and I learned it I learned it after I exited like the big corporate environment. And, and maybe if I would have learned it before or been willing to do it, then things would be different. I don't know. But this is, I've always been a person who's had this like high level of humility. So let's say I'm, I'm doing something. I don't go like tell people at work, like in the corporate environment I'm talking about that I am doing something or that we, our team accomplished something. Like I, we, we, we celebrate it inside our team. It's kind of a cool thing. Occasionally I'll tell my manager, but like, I don't tell anybody else. I don't go to, I think the thing we need to learn is that it's not being obnoxious or braggadocious to share the journey that we're on with other people. And it's the ups and the downs, those good things we need to celebrate in a bigger way, because when we celebrate them in a bigger way, then folks are um, privy to what we're contributing to the organization. And then when it comes to us needing to move up, uh, now more people are aware of the things we've been doing in a way that's more collaborative, again, um, sharing versus in a braggadocious way. But because what, what happens is those people who are promoted are those who have the loudest voice, the ones who are more out there with what it is they've done. So there's a, there's a balance to be struck, I think, on how we do that. But I think that's one thing that we need to get better at. Don't try to be so humble where we don't talk about it all, our successes, or else then no one knows what the heck we're up to. And so there's no way for us to go on anybody's list for promotion. I would think the other thing is this. We leaders spend a whole bunch of time focusing on the things we cannot control or influence. A mm. whole bunch of time. Mm. I would say we need to say, okay, what, what, what is it that's concerning me today? And we need to take those things. It's okay. Out of the things that are concerning, this list of five things. What are the things that I can control? Put it in the control bucket. Okay. And are there any that I can influence? Put it in the influence bucket. And the ones that are not any of those buckets, just throw the dang things away. X them out. Take a piece yeah. of paper, write it out, throw it in the wastebasket. <laughs> yeah. I think we do that too much. So those would be the two things. Cool. Those are great things. Um, when we think about um, unlearning as like a term and a phrase, everyone gets to kind of define it for themselves. Um, how would you define unlearning? Um, and, and what are you personally these days, whether it be um, as a parent, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, unlearning yourself? Hmm. I think like unlearning just requires a, a, a desire to like change, change something. So if I'm unlearning this, I'm going to say, well, I have to change myself, my mindset, my thought process when I'm thinking and, and then by by extension I change my behavior if I can change the mindset and what I'm thinking um, and the thing that I think I'm unlearning right now is that idea of um, getting angry or feeling vengeful like not really what's the word for it like uh, kind of like a, it's not revengeful but kind of I can't think of the word right now but not being happy towards another person because I failed to care for me so I failed, failed, failed to put me first. So then I all of a sudden feel this, this like, what is the word? Just give it to me because it's it's on the tip uh, of my it, tongue. It's, yeah, blanking for me too. But yeah, exactly. It. Good, good. So if, the people out there, you're hearing that look in real life. Yeah. Um, but you just, you feel like that. You feel just kind of ugh, towards the person, but in the end, you're like, wait a second. 
I'm responsible for me and my journey and happiness and contentness. And so I'm trying to unlearn that kind of dependence on someone giving me permission or someone making it happen. Or it's that I need to do it for myself. Mm, that seems uh, rings true also to what you said earlier in the podcast about like, I can't wait for an invitation. I have to go out there and do it yourself mm-hmm. um, or, you know, make my voice be, be part of the conversation. Um, I think that's very inspirational. Again, another nod to walking the walk and doing the work that you're doing. Um, so curious about a couple of things and we're going to go into rapid fire just to close down. Um, what are you most excited for in the next six months of life? This could be work, could be personal, could be um, spiritual, something that you're just so excited for. Mm, so excited for. Mm. I mean, I'm excited to continue to watch my children's journey. I have one who's a sophomore in college and one who'll be going off to college. And so I would say like watching the kids journey, I think over these next months will be a good one and a fun one to see. Um, so excited. Oh, that's, that's a hard one. I have, there's just so many, I think right in the moment, I'm a tiny overwhelmed because life is good it's and it's vast and varied let's say that i'm just i think staying healthy it will be a real big focus of mine uh, as i continue to go at this at 150 miles an hour Uh, Mm -hmm. so i think i'm excited about just remaining healthy and keeping a cadence of accountability for myself for myself to myself is another thing i'm really kind of excited and focused and, and enthused by Good. That's a good thing to be excited for, to feel empowered <laughs> too. Um, okay, so we're going to do a little bit of rapid fire. Um, first song you listen to today, if you listen to a song. No song today. No songs today. Okay. Uh, first thought when you woke up this morning. Boy, I feel a little tired. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, do you prefer uh, oceans or mountains? Oh, that's so probably mountains. Okay. Cake or ice cream? Cake. The last book you read that changed you? Probably Who who Moved My Cheese. What's it called? Who Moved Your Cheese. That's what it's called. I think it's Who Moved My Cheese. Yeah. Who Moved My Cheese. Yeah. Are you a morning or a night owl? Probably morning. Okay. Um, Handheld book or audiobook? Handheld. Always. Um, typing or writing, like on a piece of paper? Typing. Um, one message of advice to young leaders and young um, people in the corporate world who are looking to create a meaningful career that um, is sustaining. Just make sure you lean into who you are, lean into who you are. Don't try to um, go after someone else's vision of you. Make sure you create your own and stick to it. I love it. Thank you, Heather, for coming on the School of Unlearning podcast. Uh, Can't wait for your next book. And thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.